Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Sincerest thanks, as always, to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship. You know, even as your worship leaders and your pastors have prepared to deliver the word to you today, we pray that you also have come with hearts prepared to receive that you are ready for the divine demand that is placed upon hearers of the word this morning. You know, Martin Luther addressed this very topic in his larger catechism. And he asked in question 160, what is required of those that hear the word preached? And he replied, it is required of those that hear the word preached that they attend upon it with diligence preparation and prayer, examine what they hear by the scriptures, receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind. As the word of God, meditate and confer of it, hide it in their hearts, and bring forth the fruit of it in their lives. That is the demand upon the hearer this morning. We're reminded that coming to church is not a spectator sport. We are not casual consumers of preaching, but we are to attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Examine what we hear by the scriptures. Receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God. We are to meditate and confer of it, hide it in our hearts, and bring forth the fruit of it in our lives. For many, of this, for many of us, this begins even Saturday night as we prepare for the Lord's Day. You know, if you have children, you know, during your time of family prayers and even evening worship, speak to them about preparing their minds and their hearts for the following day. Begin quieting yourself. Begin focusing your mind and your hearts on the things of the Lord. Maybe don't do a movie marathon to midnight the night before we are to be attending to the word with a readiness of mind, with diligence, preparation, and prayer. And by doing so, beloved, we are telegraphing to our children that this matters, that this is a day set apart, and that we come with a joyful expectation of what the Lord intends to do through his word and through the fellowship of the brethren. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we continued with part two of our series titled Three-Pronged Attack, where we have been exploring the collusion and the execution of a plan by the Sanhedrin to get Jesus to indict himself. They want this troublemaker gone, right? He's cost them immense amounts of money by clearing the temple. He's caused them to lose face. He's damaged their pride by his scathing parable of the vine growers. They understood very well that Jesus spoke about them, only throwing gasoline on the fire. And still all is according to plan. While they intended evil in their hearts, of course, we are able to see God's hand in the divine timetable of redemption. The attacks and strategy of the religious leadership thus far have been a sight to behold, have they not? Our first attack by way of reminder coming from those strange bedfellows, the Pharisees and the Herodians coming together to challenge Jesus on whether or not they should pay taxes to Caesar, supposing that either way Jesus answered, they would have him trapped. 
either as a revolutionary to Rome, saying that we should not pay our taxes, or as a traitor to the Jews, saying that we should. Of course, you recall that Jesus' response was masterful, sending them away, stewing in their anger, leading last week to the second prong of our attack from a lesser-known group called the Sadducees. Now, we did a bit of a deep dive into this small group, not only understanding who they were, but more importantly, what they believed. What was their doctrine? And although being the smallest group within the Sanhedrin, recall that they were the most powerful, right? They essentially ran the temple. Thus, they were the primary beneficiaries of the scams that were being run in the court of the Gentiles. Indeed, their entire existence surrounded the operation of the temple, So much so that after the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, we never hear of this group again. So more importantly, we examined more what they believed. We needed to understand their doctrine for us to grasp the gravity and the finality of Jesus' response to their attack, of how truly crushing and devastating it was to their errant theology. Now recall that the Sadducees professed loyalty to the Torah alone, right? to the Pentateuch, to the first five books of the Bible. Everything after that was merely a commentary on them. So because of this, they had a very particular bend against the supernatural, meaning they rejected any form of miracles, no angels, no demons, no afterlife, and therefore they did not believe, as our text said, in the resurrection of the dead. As they saw it, they saw no mention of the dead being resurrected in the Torah, thus it did not exist. Of course, this put them at odds with the Pharisees continually, but we see this view manifested in our second attack last week. Recall that they came at Jesus, well, with truly an absurd scenario, concerning a woman that had a husband who died. And she married the brother in accordance with Mosaic law, but he died without producing an heir. And so it went on and on with all seven brothers. And as we demonstrated, the Sadducees were employing what's commonly known as reductio ad absurdum, right? Which is Latin for reduction to absurdity, meaning they're making an absurd argument that's meant to disprove the resurrection by showing that if it were real, the result is ridiculous, right? It's absurd, it's impractical in its conclusion. Asking finally in the last week's text, in the resurrection, the Sadducees ask, whose wife will she be? Of course, they think they've stumped Jesus with this one, because it's likely they've stumped the Pharisees with this before. And the Sadducees weren't wrong in this way of thinking, right? According to Pharisaical theology, You'll recall that the Pharisees taught that the afterlife was simply an extension of this one. Heaven was merely a better version of earth, but the structures and the institutions still remained. Now, of course, this isn't true. Heaven is heaven and earth is earth. Marriage, for example, while being a divine institution, is also an earthly institution. And thus, Jesus accomplished two tasks in his response to this really absurd challenge. After telling them that they are mistaken, he demonstrates through Exodus 3 that there is, in fact, resurrection demonstrated in the Torah. Not only that, but telling them that they didn't understand Scripture nor the power of God, meaning you don't know God. And the God that you have made, you've made in your own image. It is not the God of Scripture. 
And Jesus is telling them that the fashioned idol in their mind is not the God of Scripture. Jesus tells them you don't understand Scripture in three ways, both through your negative ignorance and through your positive unwillingness, nor do you understand the power of God. Of course, without knowing the Scriptures, you cannot know the power of God. And without the power of God, you cannot apply the truths of Scriptures to your lives. And of course, we need both, don't we, beloved? We need both to dwell richly in our lives. And Jesus rocks the world of these Sadducees with his answer, just as he had with the Pharisees and the Herodians before them, quoting the Torah, Exodus 3, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Not I was, but I am. Meaning, as we said, present tense. As I speak to you now, Moses, out of the burning bush in Exodus 3, I am the God of these men. I am not the God of the dead, but of the living. Reminding us that death is not a state, it is an act. All who have ever lived are alive still, whether in heaven or hell. Having passed through the act of death, all are awake, alive, and conscious of their location. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive today, Jesus is saying. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Just as we pass through birth and are then alive, likewise we pass through death and are then alive. We were reminded that death is a singular act. It is not a state in which we dwell. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord instantaneously. To pass from this world without Christ is hell instantly. We do not float around as angels. We have physical bodies, Scripture teaches us. Now, no doubt, much like the Pharisees and Herodians, this left the Sadducees speechless and only more angrier than when they had arrived, even more committed to seeing this man hang on a tree. But suffice to say, the second prong of the attack had failed, and it had failed completely. But while this second attack has been going on and this debate has been happening, someone else has been listening. And today we'll look at that last and final attack by the religious elite to trap Jesus, though this one will be unlike the first two. We find a difference both in the heart and the motive of this last emissary of the Sanhedrin. Such an amazing scene we're going to complete our trilogy with. So with that, beloved, let's look to our text this morning. Let's look to our text, Mark 12, 28 through 34. Mark 12, 28 through 34. And when one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, he recognized that he had answered them well and asked him, being Jesus, What commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and that there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
And when Jesus saw that he had answered thoughtfully, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would dare to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe this morning of, Lord, the mastery at which you ushered in the divine timetable for your own execution for our redemption. Heavenly Father, as we look to this text this morning, we ask, Lord, that you would cause it to go deep. We ask that the lessons that you have prepared for us would find its mark into good ground, that the seeds that are planted would bring forth fruit. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, we have a treasure trove of riches to see in God's word this morning, so we're going to dive right in, beginning with our first verse. Look with me to verse 28, beloved, verse 28. And when one of the scribes came... Now, pause there for a moment so we can look at the latest actor in our scene. Now, we first saw Pharisees and Herodians, right? Then we saw the Sadducees, all of whom we explained in depth. And here, finally, we see a scribe. Now, who are these fine gentlemen? Well, essentially, our scribes were experts in the law. They were students of the law. Now, it's important to note from a theology standpoint that all scribes were Pharisees, but not all Pharisees were scribes, okay? Though the scribes would be the most learned of the Pharisees, that matters as we begin to unfold our scene. So look back to our text. We see that this scribe had heard them arguing, Now, Mark doesn't give us a full picture here. If we read Mark's account in isolation, it would almost appear to us like this scribe just happened to be listening to this exchange and he stepped in with his own question or attack. But that's not the way it happened. If we rotate our gospel diamond over to Matthew briefly, chapter 22, no need to turn there. Verse 34, listen to this. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, They gathered themselves together, and one of them, a scholar of the law, asked him a question, testing him. So do we see what happened here? But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, that the second prong of the attack had been put down, they gathered themselves together. So after the first two attacks had failed, there's a little powwow at the headshed, right? Pharisees and the Herodians get schooled. Sadducees just got paddled. What now? Send in the PhDs. Send in the scribes. Send in the super Pharisees. If anyone can get Jesus, if anyone can match wits with him, it's going to need to be an expert, a scholar of the law. But that begs the question, why the law? Now, given they wanted to entrap Jesus, what is it about the law that they saw as an Achilles heel? Why did they see this as the coup de grace, as the final shot to take Jesus down? Well, the answer will be revealed in our question. Look back to our text, last part of verse 28. He recognized that he had answered them well. Well, that's instructive, isn't it? He heard Jesus' answers right up to this point, and he says, yep, that's, that sounds about right. And he asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Now, this requires some context to appreciate the the nuance and the depth of this question. Which law, what commandment is foremost? Which commandment, which law is the greatest? Now, understand the question here. How many laws are contained in in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible? 
There's 613 of them, 365 negative and 248 positive. Now, just for curiosity's sake, if you wonder why, there are 613 laws. If you were to look at the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments, in the Hebrew, there are exactly 613 characters in the Decalogue. Therefore, we need 613 laws to correspond to the 613 characters in the Ten Commandments. But all of these laws were classified in all different sorts of ways. Right? They were primarily categorized in what you would consider to be weighty or heavy laws or lighter or lesser laws. They realized that they couldn't keep all 613 as we could. So they said, let's just focus on the weightier ones. Let's whittle this down to a more manageable level. Let's boil this down to the big ones, which is exactly what the scribe is doing to Jesus here. We've whittled everything away down but the weighty laws, but which law is the greatest? Which commandment is at the heart of the law? Kind of reminds me of Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings, where it talked about one ring to rule them all, right? What is it? Now, that seems to be a pretty benign question on the face. What's the greatest commandment? Where's the catch? Where's the trap there? Well, if we remember the accusations against Jesus, not only through his ministry, but even as he stood before Pilate, they claimed that he subverted the law of Moses that he did not follow the law of Moses. And remember that to the Jews, Moses was top dog. To go against Moses was to go against God. And of course, Jesus continually corrects that faulty assumption, telling them that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Nothing could be further from the truth. But the accusation was that Jesus was anti-law that he was anti-Moses, that he told his own disciples, don't follow the law. That's the accusation. So by asking Jesus what law was the foremost, what law was the greatest, they expect Jesus to make up his own. They expect Jesus to come up with something not given or written by Moses, and that will expose him. We can call him a heretic now. And if he's a heretic, he'll lose popularity, and we can prove to Rome that he threatens the peace of the region with his heresy, and we can have him killed. So those two things need to happen. Lose his popularity and make Rome feel threatened. Those two ingredients, and we've got him. Now, just as with the previous attacks, Jesus' response is masterful. Far from subjugating the law of Moses or putting what they perceive to be his own opinion or teaching above that of Moses, how does Jesus respond? Look with me to verse 29. Verse 29. Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now, before we dive into this, let us first observe that Jesus concedes that there is a heart to the law, that there is a centrality to the law, that there is a fountainhead from which all of this flows. There is a primary law that makes keeping all the others even possible, even meaningful. There is one commandment that dictates the correct application of all the others, right? Jesus accepts this premise. And he answers how? Look at the text. The foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Hang on. 
That's the Shema. And we read that beautiful text this morning, didn't we? That's the Hebrew text. That's the Hebrew prayer that's said every morning and every evening by every Jew, right? This comes from Deuteronomy 6. Every Jew would know this. Listen to the whole Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as a frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And guess who wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Moses. This was a prayer that every Jew knew. When you see those little boxes, the phylacteries on the heads and the forearms of the, of the scribes and the Pharisees, like the, one, the very one speaking to Jesus right now, inside that little box was a tiny scroll. And in that tiny scroll were these words, exactly. So not only is Jesus not strained from the law of Moses, but is so closely tied to it, it's sitting on their forehead. But that's not the end. Jesus is just opening the flower here. First, the Shema. Our God is one, meaning we must know him rightly. Monotheistic, one God. Jesus points to the nature and the attribute of God. If we are to know him, if we are to faithfully serve God, it doesn't matter how sincere or intense we are if it's on the wrong God. We've said many times from this pulpit that it's not the sincerity of our faith that make it true. It's not the genuineness or the intensity of our faith that make it true. It is the object of our faith that makes it true. Because we can sincerely, genuinely, and intensely be wrong. What is the object of our faith? Thus exactly where Jesus starts, saying, hey, you have a monotheistic God. Our God is one. Have the right object of your faith. Otherwise, nothing else matters. Many will spend their entire lives in dedication and service to a God of their own making and design not the God of Scripture. How often when confronted with hard doctrines do we hear, well, pastor, I don't believe that. I don't feel that. That's not what I was taught. That's not how I was raised. It matters not. What does Scripture say? When Jesus is challenged, he points to what? Time and again, he points to Scripture. Let that be our model. Let that be our guide. If we are going to open our mouths about anything of substance and importance, let it be Scripture says. Let it be the counsel of the Lord. All else is chaff that's blown away by the wind. This is Jesus' example to us, beloved. He goes on in verse 30 with the Shema. Verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, is that not a four-part series in the making right there? Of course it is. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. So not only must we know God rightly, know his attributes, know that he is one, know who he is, but what is the motivation? What's the fuel? What's the end game? 
Loving God. Love is the fuel. God is the object here. What is the foremost commandment, teacher? Know God through the word. And through the word that feeds your heart, that feeds your soul and your mind and your strength, you are now fueled to love the object of your affection, Jesus Christ. This is an apageo love, agapeo love, excuse me, which speaks of a Holy Spirit-generated love in the heart that's due unto God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, with your entire being. It consumes you. Does that reflect your relationship with God here this morning? And we aren't talking about all these in perfection, beloved. We're talking about direction. Even though we stumble along the way, even though we lean on grace as a wounded soldier, is your desire for him. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not in perfection, but in direction. Kent Hughes says it, says it wonderfully. It does not take much of a man to be a believer, but it takes all there is of him. You're no longer your own. You've been captured by Christ, consumed in your affections, captivated in your mind. You're dedicated in your strength. All of me, this is the foremost greatest commandment. And you, scribe, should know it. You prayed it this very moment, this very morning. It's on your forehead. It's on your forearm in that little box. Was this the answer the scribe was expecting, I wonder? Probably not. But beloved, what happens when you are saturated in the first and greatest commandment? What is the outflowing, the outworking, or the guaranteed result when we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? The result is the second greatest commandment. Look with me to verse 31. Verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. What flows downstream from loving God with all your being? You love other people. And only by loving God supremely will I be able to love others genuinely. However, this is one of those verses that requires a close reading, doesn't it? What is the command here? It is to love your neighbor. It is to love other people. That is the command. That is the you shall here. Is the command here to love yourself? No. Love your neighbor as yourself, meaning you already love yourself. You don't need a command to do that. That comes completely naturally, doesn't it? No, the command is that you are to love others as much as you love yourself already. Now, certainly the motivation of self-love is one of the distinctives of our culture today, isn't it? Coupled, of course, with the self-esteem movement that propagated out of San Francisco in the 1970s has yielded a more depressed more medicated society than we have ever had. No, beloved, our world does not suffer from a lack of self-love. Yet people are told that the solution is to love themselves more, forgive themselves more. The key to a happy life is good self-esteem. That's the wisdom of the world. And how's that been going? The world tells you to look within. 
When Scripture tells you to look without, to look up and to look out. Look up to God. Look out to other people. And now when you do look in and you see the dirt and the stains that remain and you see the failures and the sin and you see the hurt or the abuse or the pain, self-esteem won't comfort that. Nothing within you can fix that. It is there that the repentant heart beholds the beauty of Christ that now radiates within you where the gift of salvation shines so beautifully against the backdrop of a darkened heart. And through that salvation, beloved, we find true worth. True worth. You want self-esteem? How about being a purchased child of God? How about knowing you've been saved from death and hell by a merciful God? How about while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? The righteous for the unrighteous. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. That's the only light that can radiate a darkened heart. Love God supremely. Coming to him in repentance and faith. And now, now that you know that God of love, the God who is love, you may love others genuinely. We cannot give to others what we do not possess ourselves. Without loving God as the fountainhead, we are spiritually and emotionally bankrupt. We have nothing to give. Thus, Jesus says, there is no other commandment greater than these. And yet, why does Jesus say commandment, singular, when he replied with two commandments, plural? Why does he do that? Because they are so joined at the hip That one guarantees the other. Our vertical relationship to God is intrinsically and separably tied to our horizontal relationship to others. Do we get that? John highlights this truth in his first epistle. If we say that we have fellowship with him, vertical, right? And yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. See that? Horizontal. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Do we see this? No one has a private relationship with God that does not spill out and pour out onto those around us. It doesn't exist. I often hear politicians sometimes on TV say, well, I don't wear my religion on my sleeve. And you have no religion, sir, not the religion of Scripture. Paul tells the church at Rome, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So with such perfection of an answer given to the scribe, The reader might expect him to react as the Pharisees did, as the Herodians did, as the Sadducees did, for the truth to make them even more angry, for them to storm off and collude more evil. But look, look at the scribe's response here. Verse 32 and 33, I'll I'll read them as one. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. 
and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Wow. You know, amazingly, this is the only place, the only place in the four Gospels where we see a member of the religious Jewish establishment agreeing with Jesus. This is it. One place. That's special. That's notable. Right? There is a genuineness with the scribe. And his response reveals a very different heart than the ones that came on the attack before him. But the beauty here is really revealed in the end of the scribe's response. What does he say? This is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now that should sound like a record screeching to a stop. That heart... That heart that spoke that runs contrary to every principle of Jewish hierarchy in existence. The spirit of the age that prized the external, right? That venerated the ritual, that chose legalism over love. No. And the scribe here is he's recounting Samuel's rebuke to King Saul. Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. The writer of Proverbs declares, to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. Consider the prophet Micah as he declares, with what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness? And to walk humbly with your God. What an answer from this scribe. Righteousness over ritual. The moral over the ceremonial. Love over legalism. Or as your pastor often likes to say, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And Jesus sees that heart. He perceives the condition of this man. This man who may have been sent in attack mode by the Sanhedrin, but inside something very different is going on. And look at our all-knowing Savior's response. Last verse, beloved, verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he had answered thoughtfully, some translations say intelligently. Now we need to pause on this descriptive because this is the only time This word is used in Scripture. Now, there's a really fun word for that. It's called a hapex legomena, right? A word only used one time in all of Scripture. Now, consider we have one spirit, one ultimate author of Scripture, and here we're presented with a situation or a a need to describe something in a way that God never has anywhere else in Scripture. That's unique. That's unique, isn't it? That means we need to stop. And we need to pay close attention to that word. Why did the God of the universe pull a new word from his bag? And only one time. 
Our word for thoughtfully, intelligently, nunekos. It means sensibly, wisely, thoughtfully. It means that this man had his wits about him, that he's on a path, that he's pointed in the right direction, that he has a sincerity of heart. We get the sense of that word. We have to grasp this for Jesus' statement, his powerful statement, to really drive home. He said to him, what? You are not far from the kingdom of God. God incarnate, the word made flesh, standing in front of you right now, says you're almost there. Now Jesus doesn't mean just work a little harder. You're almost there. This legalist, this scribe, had walked down that road his entire life. His entire world played to that tune. So what does he mean? We see Jesus use exactly the same language back in Mark 1. I wonder how many can remember back two years ago when we were in Mark 1. Jesus uses the same words. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Same principle here, same intent. You are not far from the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. And what is Jesus' command in Mark 1 in light of that? Repent and believe in the gospel. If you're facing the other direction, there's no hope, there's no light, there's no salvation. But you, scribe, your recognition of love over legalism, of the moral over the ceremonial, of righteousness over ritual, means you're staring truth in the face. This scribe is facing the right direction. He is in the sphere of approaching the kingdom. It's near. It's near. Now, by what power can the scribe continue? Now what? His own steam? His own works? No. Paul tells the Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What is the response to that? For those standing at the line looking in, for those who are not far from the kingdom, those who have their wits about them, are thinking clearly, are pointed in the right direction by God's grace. What now? What now, scribe? What now, Harrison Hills? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near you. Repent and believe the gospel. Beloved, I don't know if we will ever meet that scribe someday in glory. We aren't told. He was very near. He may have walked right up to the line, but like the rich young ruler, saw that it would cost him everything and went away sad. It does not take much of a man to be a believer, but it takes all there is of him. Oh, to the scribe. So close, so very close. But beloved, the call hasn't changed. The command remains. Repent and believe the gospel. He who has called you is faithful and true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mirror of your word this morning. Lord, that we might humbly come before it, that we might look in that mirror and see ourselves as we are. 
Lord, not as we wish ourselves to be. Lord, not as we wish you to be, but Lord, as you are and as we are. Lord, we are desperate creatures in need of you. Lord, we cannot take a single breath without your mercy toward us. We ask that this word would go down deep, that it would find a resting place and bring forth fruit. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. amen.